Hey Mosaic, thanks for joining us for our online service. We've been going through this series on the book of Colossians, and wow, how timely is this? We've now gotten through the first half of Colossians 3, and today we're going to be wrapping up that chapter. What a crazy, crazy time where because of this virus, we've been stuck at home. And I don't know about you, but man, this virus has been exposing cracks in my own soul, uh, in our family's life. And it just so happens that this part of chapter three of Colossians is going to focus on the family. Well, here we are in Colossians chapter three. And Paul has been talking about that the new believers in this Colossians church, that they have been saved and rescued and redeemed through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what does that mean? What does that mean for the Colossians church? Well, they are not just rescued and redeemed, but they are in fact a new creation. And we're going to see that this new creation is lived out first in our homes. Paul's been telling the Colossians that they have been rescued and redeemed. In fact, they are a new creation. And now they're going to live this out in an age of freedom and grace. And putting the life of this new age begins at home. Putting the life of this new age begins at home. It was common in this time period to have different rules for your homes. And now Paul's going to share his rules for his home. But his rules are based on our, our new nature, that Christ releases you and I to be truly human. And now you must learn to express your true self according to the divine pattern, not in self-assertion, but in self-giving. What does it mean that we have been redeemed and rescued by Jesus Christ and now live in him? How does that change us? We've been talking last week how we're going to put off these old things to put on the new things in Christ. And above all these, we clothe ourselves in love, that we want the peace of Christ to rule our hearts and our minds, that we want to be thankful. But now how do we live that out in our homes? And man, this is so timely, as so many of us are spending so much more time in our homes with our kids, for those of us who are parents, with our spouses, for those of us who are married. Well, I want to give you a little context about this time that Paul is writing in, in, in first century Mediterranean world. They didn't have very big homes, um, but some homes they'd have just, you know, one floor where everyone lived, but then there'd be a patio up top. And that was the domain of dad. He had the patio as his kind of man cave. And wealthier homes, a little bit bigger, they might have two levels, but again, the second level of the home belonged to dad. The wife and the kids actually lived downstairs, and dad would live upstairs. And this was the domain of dad, and the wife and kids were not allowed upstairs into the domain of dad. The wife and kids were literally below dad. They were his property. He could come down at any time into the lower level, but you were not allowed as wife and kids upstairs unless you were invited up. He could come down at any time, but you weren't allowed to go up. And oftentimes in this culture, the father of the home was very domineering. He's literally standing over his family. Whatever he said went. And so when we read what Paul's going to say, we need to understand how his original readers would have heard this. And so it's a big deal. We're going to see that Paul addresses both husbands and wives. 
Would you join me in a word of prayer before we dive into God's word today? God, thank you that you are here with us, that we have this chance to gather together online. Thank you for the book of Colossians that Paul, the church planner, wrote it to this new church to give us instructions on how to live this new life, this new nature in Christ. God, I pray as we dive into Paul's instructions inspired by you, God, that we'd apply into our own lives, that each and every home would be blessed. God, that everyone listening would receive from you what you need them to receive. And then we pray. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Colossians. And we find ourselves now in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. And I really want to encourage you to be reading Colossians on a regular basis, studying and getting to God's word throughout this week. Our hope and our desire is that during this whole month of March and into April, as we lead up into Easter celebration, that we're going to be fed and fueled by God's word. And so in your small groups, be talking about how, what you're reading, what you're getting out of it, how God is inspiring you. Uh, talk about the, the last half of chapter three in your small groups this week, in your own personal times, be, be journaling. Uh, maybe you haven't been journeying with us through the book of Colossians. It's never too late to go back and read chapters one, two, and three. It's an amazing book. So much you can get out of it. Uh, I've read this book dozens of times in my life, and every time I read it, I get something new out of it. So let's read Colossians chapter 3, 18 through 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right, anytime we read this verse, there are some people that are going to get instantly offended. So I just want to ask you to hold steady on your offense. In fact, we were talking about this in small group and someone was sharing that, man, anytime any pastor preached on this passage, his wife, she just gets so upset. And I was like, whoa, hang on. Give me a chance here uh, to see what is Paul actually saying in this scripture. And what's so funny is that when we read this, what jumps out at us? The part that wives submit to your husbands. Now, the original readers, that would have been like, yeah, of course. Like, I'm his property. I live beneath him. I have no rights in society whatsoever. I have no choice in this matter whatsoever. But when the original uh, uh, audience would have heard husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. They'd have been like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're getting in my grill now. No one tells dad what to do. He is the ultimate authority. So that's what the original readers would have heard. We get offended at the whole wives, submit your husbands. They would have been offended by the other part. Husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Just the idea that Paul's telling the husbands what to do. They would have been like, what? No one tells me what to do. Now, Before we get into what this actually means, I want to share seven things that Paul is not saying. Seven things that Paul is not saying. Number one, this does not speak to single people. This part is only to married people. So if you're single, hey, this doesn't apply to you. This is instructions only for married people. Number two, this is not speaking to an arena outside of the home. This is just addressing the home. This is not talking about politics. Should women run for president? Should women be governors or senators? This is not talking about this. This is not talking about work life. This is not talking about whether women should serve in the military or police. This is only talking about home life. Number three, this is not saying that a wife needs to obey her husband in everything. Paul says, submit as is fitting to the Lord. He doesn't say, wives, obey your husband in everything. Ladies, sometimes you can say no. It's okay. If your husband tells you to do something that is sinful, that is wrong, that is harmful, do you submit to that? No, you can say no. Paul's going to go on and say, children, obey your parents in the Lord. 
but he doesn't say that to wives. This is, this is not what it means here. This doesn't mean that the husband gets to boss everyone around in the home. Number four, this does not mean that the wife is less valuable, intelligent, or competent. One of the things you learn as a man when you get married is, boy, there are a whole lot of things that your wife is way more competent at than you are. There's so many things that Kristen is way better at than I am. And there's a few, one or two things that I'm more competent at than she is. But that's what's so great about marriage is that God brings two people together with different strengths, different weaknesses. And so Paul's not saying that, hey, the husband's up here and the wife's down here. The husband is more competent in every area than the wife is. That's not what he's saying. Number five, he's not saying that men are superior and women are inferior. He's not saying that somehow men are up here and women are down here and women can only relate to God through the covering of their husband. That is not what he is saying. That through Christ there is neither Greek nor slave nor male nor female. Together we are in Christ together. We are a new creation together. Women are not inferior to men. That is not what Paul is saying. In fact, Paul was one of the very first people who posited that women had rights, that they were humans, that they had value. In fact, he's going to address the children. That would have been groundbreaking. That in these days, children were just seen as something uh, just to, at the pleasure of the husband, that they're just there to grow up someday. The fact that he's even going to address the kids is going to give them value and dignity and worth. This is groundbreaking in the ancient world. Number six, this does not mean that a wife can't seek to influence her husband. Absolutely. God speaks to wives just as much as he speaks to husbands. Now, there's a big difference between influence and manipulate. And we don't want to seek to manipulate each other. But so many times when when, uh, I'm going to do something or I'm going to make a decision or whatever, it's totally okay for Kristen to try to influence me and the decisions that we make as a family. That is totally okay. You can still be in submission and listening to your husband while still trying to influence him to make the wisest decision. Number seven, this isn't supposed to be forced. This isn't something that wives are forced into doing. This should be part of a, of a loving, life-giving marriage, a marriage where there's deep friendship between the husband and the wife. See, friendship is essential to marriage. Friendship love can be cultivated by spending quality time together. Fortunately for us, many of us were spending a lot of quality time together. Well, actually we're spending a lot of time together, but is it quality? That's something to think about right now is that when we look back in COVID-19 and the story that we tell, will it be a story worth telling? Are we going to redeem this time? That when we come out of this season, that we've grown closer as a family, that we've grown closer to God, that God has stretched us, that God has grown us? What kind of story are we going to tell when finally what we talk about COVID-19 is a story a year, five years, ten years from now? My hope is that if you've been spending all this time together as a family, with a spouse, it's going to be quality time. So I want to talk just a couple minutes about friendship. The friendship is essential to your marriage. You need to be having these quality time together. They might be playing video games together. It might be going for a run or playing cards. It's something that one of you at least enjoys doing. And then ideally that you can talk while you're doing it. So you can play video games and and still talk or go for a run and still talk or play a game and still talk, still communicate. You can be doing household chores together, like gardening or chores around the house or things that bond you together. I mean, who knew that doing the dishes together could be so romantic? We don't often see that in the romantic comedies, 
but it's true that doing household tasks together, my wife and I are getting ready to paint our bathroom. And I'm excited to spend some time together and hopefully we won't uh, you know, get too angry at each other or throw paint too much. But hey, that is building our friendship. That is building us closer to each other. By spending this kind of quality time with each other, it shows that your spouse has a priority in your life. That it's not just about sit on the couch or playing your own thing on video games or whatever it might be. It's showing that your spouse has a priority in your life. Friendship love can also be expressed by showing interest in your work. If one or both of you work, uh, have a job and you work outside of the home, it's showing an interest in that. Hey, how'd that meeting go? Hey, are you burned out on Zoom calls yet? How's your boss doing? How's your employee doing? It's, it's appreciating and understanding each other's work. Friendship love can also be expressed by just sharing each other's mental world. Try reading a novel together. Maybe instead of Netflix or Hulu or Disney+, Plus, it's, it's reading a book out loud together. I had some good friends that early on in their marriage that read through all the Harry Potter books and, and then Lord of the Rings together. And she wasn't a big sci-fi or fantasy fan, but it was something they could do together. And so he could read to her out loud right before bed, and it was, it was a special, intimate moment for them. It's, it's engaging in, in the mental world. Maybe talk about just, just how your thinking has shifted in politics, in religion, in, in whatever it might be. Early on, when Kristen and I were dating, we spent hours discussing the fine points of theology, of Calvinist versus Arminian uh, theology, and, and, and all these things. And over the years, we've been able to share, hey, you know, I, I once thought this way because I was reading these authors, but now really God has been changing my thinking. And that's really great to connect together in that way. Finally, friendship love is expressed and grows through both listening and opening up to each other. Friendship is above all relationship in which it's safe to share our fears, our desires, our hurts, our weaknesses. It's having that emotional refuge with your spouse. And Paul offers a careful balance for husbands and wives. He's saying neither husband or wife should be domineering or arrogant. And it's really this biblical idea of co-leadership but single headship. Co-leadership but single headship. We see this all throughout scripture and this is played out in so many arenas. In our church, we have co-leadership with our staff and governing team, but single headship with a senior pastor. We see this again and again in scripture that the apostle James was single headship in Acts 15. There was co-leadership among all the apostles, but he was the single headship. We see this with Peter in Acts 1 and 2 and Paul in so many churches that he planted. And, and, and on and on and on, Moses and Joshua and King David. This idea of co-leadership but single headship. And the submission here that Paul talks about towards a wife is not that of a slave or a doormat. It doesn't mean that the wife is just some property that the husband can just trample. Paul's talking about equality. That doesn't mean the same identity of role or function. Men and women are equal before God, but we have different roles, different functions, as we have different strengths, different weaknesses, and God brings us together we are better together. Paul addresses this again in one of his later prison epistles in Ephesians 5, 21 through 25. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Again, to your own husbands, not to all men everywhere. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, in everything to their husbands. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as he is the single headship. But his responsibility is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He laid down his life. And so this idea of mutual submission means laying down our own desires and wants for the other person. It doesn't mean domineering. It doesn't mean getting your own way. It means loving like Christ. Here's what N.T. Wright, theologian, pastor, the Bishop of Durham, one of my favorite theologians, he writes this. He says, The wife must forego the temptation to rule her husband's life, using perhaps one of the many varieties of domestic blackmail. The husband must ensure that his love for his wife, like Christ for his people, always puts her interests first. In particular, he must scrupulously avoid the temptation to resent her being the person she is, to become bitter or angry when she turns out to be, like him, a real human being, and not merely, merely the projection of his own hopes or fantasies. It is when husbands and wives understand these guidelines and live by them that they are truly free, free to mature and develop within the creative context of mutual love and respect. That is what Paul wants for us, is that we are free to be who God created us to be, free to love, free to serve. Because the truth is, both men and women can be domineering. We're both capable of that. Maybe it's with volume where we raise our voices. Maybe it's using our emotions to manipulate the other person. Maybe it's recruiting our kids against the other spouse. That's domineering. And both men and women are capable of this. That's not what Paul, that's not what Jesus wants for us. It's this idea of mutual submission. I'm laying down my wants and desires for the good of you. I'm going to love you like Christ loved the church. Ladies, how you treat your husband is a precedent for how your kids are going to treat you. If you don't respect your husband, if you don't show him honor and treat him with value and dignity, treat him like he is intelligent and capable, then your kids aren't going to expect you, and they're not going to treat you with love and like you have value. Husbands, teach your kids to honor mom. One of my favorite pastors is Andy Stanley down in Georgia. They had one major rule in their family, which was to honor mom. And I love that. It wasn't even honor mom and dad, it's honor mom because if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And he talked at our conference a couple weeks ago about how they live this out, that, that they taught their kids to stand behind their plates at dinner time before, uh, and anyone, no one could eat until mom sat down. Because if your home's anything like mine, uh, Kristen's cooking, she's up, and then we're dishing things out, and for some reason, mom is almost always the last one to sit down. And so what happens so often in our family is that we sit down and we're waiting and then maybe we pray, we eat, and Kristen's up and she's getting different stuff. And then by the time she sits down, we're halfway done with our meals. Well, Andy Stanley shared how early on they taught their kids to stand upside, stand up behind their chairs and until Sandra, his wife, sat down, then they could sit down and then they'd pray and then they would eat. And he said it was kind of funny as, as their kids were teenagers and they'd invite friends over for, for dinner. Their friends would sit down and, and, and get down, get ready to eat their food and they'd look around and realize... All the other kids are standing behind their chair like, what are we doing? They do the same thing. But there's a way of showing honor and respect to the mom. That's something we've been trying to do as our family. We're not perfect in it. We're trying to teach our kids to honor Chris and honor their mom by at dinner time, hey, we're going to stand behind our chairs before we eat, and then we're going to sit down when she sits down so we all eat together. Because it's not just about shoveling food into our face. These family dinners are a time to show love and respect to each other as we listen and we engage into the mental worlds of one another. So that's one way that we can show this mutual love and respect. Another way to show love is by serving each other. Serving each other begins with the most practical 
and menial tasks. That, guys, that means being willing to change diapers. Serving your spouse also means showing him or her great respect. It's saying that you will always speak up for them, that you will not let them make a fool of themselves or embarrass, that you're always going to show loyalty. You're going to appreciate that when you're in front of family, when you're in front of your friends, that you speak well of your spouse when you're with your own parents, when you're with their parents, when you're with your, out with your girlfriends or, or your, your guy friends, that you're going to speak well of your spouse. One of the greatest expressions of agape love is this willingness to change, to make a commitment to change attitudes and behaviors in yourself that trouble your spouse. If your spouse is hurt by your sarcasm, don't just say, well, this is who I am. I'm just a sarcastic person. I can't help it if her feelings are getting hurt. No, agape love, the love like the father says, no, I'm going to change my attitudes. I'm going to change my behaviors so that I can love, so that I can serve my spouse like Christ loved the church. There must be an ability to take correction and to be accountable for real concrete change. One thing I've been thinking about lately, too, is that there's a big difference between feeling shame and guilt and like we did something wrong and actually apologizing. I see this played out with my kids so many times. They know they did something wrong, so they run away and they hide, but they don't actually take the step to repair the relationship, to apologize in our own lives as parents, as adults. But there's a big difference between feeling shame and apologizing. Then what we need to do is to apologize, to come and, and reconcile that relationship. That feeling, that shame and guilt, that's not the same as apologizing. Finally, there's no greater way for Christian spouses to serve each other than to help each other grow spiritually. We have such an opportunity during this time where we are trapped at home. How are we going to spur each other on to grow spiritually? Are we going to pray together? Are we going to read our Bibles together? Are we going to Listen to worship music. What are we going to do? This means encouraging each other to participate in Christian community. We have these Zoom calls on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights. Jump in one if you're not. It's a way to just engage in community. Last Thursday night, our small group, we split up. The men got on the call first, and we shared them the women. And man, that was so good. Just have some time just to connect. Hey, how are you doing? This is tough. How are you working from home? How's it going? You know, trying to homeschool the kids with, with online learning and all that stuff. It means reading and digesting Christian books together as well as studying the Bible together. This brings us to what we've talked about before many times, but the special sauce of marriage. And even though this is uncomfortable for so many of us, I don't think there's anything more powerful that will help your marriage than this. This idea that will go to the heart of mutual submission. It's this idea that we are all in authority as well as under authority. Jesus modeled this for us. Jesus was in authority. He could cast out the demons. He, he could speak to the wind and the waves and they would obey him. But he also, he says, he did nothing under his own authority, but only under the Father's. He was there to do the will of his Father. Jesus was both in authority and under authority. As husbands, as wives, as parents, we are both in authority and under authority. And one way to show that we are under authority of God is by praying together out loud and letting our kids see that. Here's where Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 13 through 18. He says, Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think there's nothing that can help your marriage more, nothing that will help you grow spiritually than praying together out loud, on a regular basis. Studies have shown that couples who pray together out loud 
on a regular basis have a 99% chance of not getting divorced. If you could do something for your marriage that gives you a 99% chance that your marriage is going to last, wouldn't you do it? But I know it's hard. We, we, you get out of, out of routine of it. We, we feel awkward. But this application is so revolutionary for your marriage. For those of you who never done this before, maybe prayed out loud or prayed with your spouse, just start. Number one, short and awkward is just fine. It's especially true for those maybe who've never even prayed out loud. You don't need to pray these long, you know, drawn out prayers. Maybe the only people you hear pray are people like me or other leaders in our church, and we use big words like sanctification in our prayers. You don't need to be like us. Short and awkward is just fine. You're laying in bed, just reach over, grab your spouse's hand, and just say, hey, let's pray. And maybe you want to say, God, we're praying out loud together, and this is awkward. I don't want to say amen. That's totally, totally fine. Number two, we want to pray with each other, not at each other. We want to pray with each other, not at each other. You know what I mean? It's not like, Heavenly Father, we pray that Josh will get better at spending time with a kid. Not just time, but quality time. That is not the time to do this when we are praying. Prayer is not your opportunity to verbally bash your spouse. Instead, we're going to be praying together with each other, not at each other. And finally, pray together with your children and pray together for your children. Just start. I know it's going to feel awkward, but whatever resistance you feel through, push through it. While we're stuck at home for this COVID-19 virus, Chris and I have been doing this new Lift 4 program on Beachbody. Let me tell you, I'm very sore. I end up doing two workouts today because I missed mine yesterday, and it's hard. And we're in our first week, and it feels awkward. I don't know all the moves, and we're doing these hits and, and lifting and different things. But to do anything great, to grow, to push ourselves, we have to get through the awkwardness, push through the resistance. Prayer is the same way. Growing spiritually with your spouse is the same way. Just push through it. And I promise you're going to see a difference in your own spiritual life, in your marriage. And you might be saying, well, Eric, but right now we're really not getting along. Like, in fact, this being home has been really, really tough. Well, I just want to encourage you to just still do it. Push through it, even though it's hard. Just commit together. Just look at each other right now and say, all right, let's try this. Things are, are rough between us and we're not getting along. But you know what? We're going to commit to pray together out loud on a regular basis. doesn't mean you have to do it every single day, but if you miss a day, make sure you don't miss two days. So you do it as often as you can. It's even okay to pray, God, we're not really getting along right now. We're struggling. This is hard to be home. We need you. Amen. That's totally fine. And see, when our kids will see us pray, it shows them that not only are they under our authority, but we are under the authority of Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We want to love and serve each other the way that Jesus loved and served us. Here's the thing to remember. Prayer is not this magical thing. It's not about just praying together. It's about coming to Jesus together. It's about saying, all right, wife, we're going to come together now. We're going to come before Jesus. We're going to invite him into our home. We're going to invite him into our marriage. During this uncertain time, it's knowing that Although the whole world is uncertain, God is not uncertain. He still has the whole world in his hands. I want to encourage you to, this week, spend time committing to pray together out loud on a regular basis. If you are married, what does it mean to love each other, to mutually submit, to love as Christ loved the church? Have some good discussion. How do we live this out? 
What does it mean for the wife to submit to the husband for co-leadership but single headship? What does it mean for the husband to love his wife? Later on in the chapter, could you read it at home? It gives instructions to parents, to fathers, to not exasperate your kids. What a great verse of this time. I don't have time to get into that today, but I'll encourage you, maybe in your own time, as a family, talk through with your kids. Hey, does dad exasperate you? <laughs> what can I do differently during this time? We want to help you grow. During this season, we are praying for you. So please let us know what we can do to help. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to wrap up with a worship song. God, thank you that you love us, and you showed us your love by sending Jesus, who was both in authority and under authority, and you showed us how to love, how to serve. So Jesus, I pray that in all the homes listening, God, that your peace would just fall, that we would just love like you loved. And God, that you would just be with us in this uncertain time. I thank you, God, that you hear us, that you are with us, and that you love us. In your name we pray.